Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast. A slightly different episode today. We've got more time for your questions than usual and we've also got a pre-recorded chat with New England opener Alex Lees. But before that, we've got a fair bit to get through in the studio. English players have had a busy few days in various franchise leagues and auction rooms around the world and there's been a long list of international cricket that's been taking place as well. I'm Yazrana, and with me to tackle all that today is the magazine editor of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, and the editor-in-chief of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker. Let's start with the England men's test squad that we did talk about last week, and not a huge amount has happened since the squad announcement, but we've had a few questions around, well, firstly, a certain newspaper column from one of the players to miss out. Stuart Broad, this weekend, writing in the Daily Mail, said... I took 11 wickets in the final two Ashes matches. I've been test match standard for a long time and for the last eight years, you would say world class. I'm in the top three bowlers in the country and whether I play or indeed Jimmy plays when we resume international cricket in June will be a call for new eyes to decide. But I suppose the support I've received elsewhere tells me how other people feel. For example, I've had more WhatsApps over the last few days than when I took 8 for 15 to beat the Australians at Trent Bridge in 2015. I hopped on the tube in London the following day and people were asking, what on earth is going on? I couldn't explain it. How could you? Steve asks, this is probably not a popular opinion, but the broad newspaper column annoyed me. England's test team has been poor for a while and Broad has been a key part of that team. Big changes are being made on and off the pitch and he is a casualty. This might feel unfair, but it's hardly like dropping Bradman or Warren. Yes, his numbers are decent in a way test, but this isn't quite the staggering decision it's made out to be. He's paying the price for England losing lots of cricket matches. He has to shoulder some responsibility for this. Andrew Strauss did the decent thing and called him personally, and yet Broad thinks he deserves more than a five-minute conversation. What did he want? A PowerPoint presentation? You've just been thumped 4-0, Stuart. It's pretty simple. Broad hasn't lost his job like Giles Silverwood or Thorpe. He's still centrally contracted, and he may still be picked at home in June. I think he's being a bit precious and perhaps needs to gain a bit more perspective. The game moves on and people get dropped all the time, even when their numbers are actually decent. It happens. Am I being harsh? That was Steve. Phil, what, what do you what do you think? Um, I thought that was quite interesting from Broad because we quite often give him credit for being media savvy. But that's the reaction I think a lot of people have, have said. A lot of people have emailed in saying this might be an unpopular opinion, but I think it actually might be a popular opinion. I love the idea that the underground is... It's just 
you know, opening up as Broad walks down and people are on their hands and knees, uh, yeah, in supplication um, and in, in scandal for this shocking decision. I, I found it staggering, uh, staggeringly over the top and totally on brand. You must have seen it brand. coming, though. Not and totally, totally on brand. Yeah. It's exactly that. Exactly that. Totally on brand. Um, uh, it was already hyped in the build-up to the week, to, to the weekend, knowing that Anderson was going to have his, his say and that Broad was as well. And we knew, uh, broadly, pardon that, that was undeliberate, that it was going to play out in a similar kind of way. I didn't think it would be quite so operatic and quite so um, self-serving. And I have to say, uh, almost beyond parody, this notion that, you know, he, he, he can't sleep, that his body's in some kind of spasm due to the stress and the, the, the horror of it. It, it, it seemed, look, I shouldn't laugh because, you know, the, the, that's disrespectful to a great cricketer whose career he feels is now on the line and, and he's obviously very emotionally charged at the moment and you understand that. And also, of course, you'd rather somebody spoke from the heart than hide behind anodyne platitudes, right? So there is something to be said for that, for sure. And who last week we all said should have been in the squad as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in the delicate ecosystem of modern media, I don't know if that really would have played out for him. I don't think if that would have worked for him that particular way of way of approaching things. There is something still in British life that we we respect a kind of stiff upper lip, a sort of you know a sort of rectitude, if you like. And the and and by broad going after the selectors, going after Root implicitly blaming them for 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 this kind of physical turmoil as much as mental turmoil that he's currently in i don't know if that plays out i don't know if that really works for him in the end um and i don't know if sympathy will be massively available to him because broad is obviously an immensely successful um and very uh very self-assured individual uh, and in british life you have to work a bit harder to find sympathy if you're of that kind of ilk, you know. Um, I don't know if it works, really. I, I, I sent it to, on the, on the WhatsApp group, didn't I? I sent it to all of us. Um, and I just, just thought, oh, you know, this is, this is broad in excelsis. This is, this is broad taking it beyond even what broad would consider to be reasonable, you know. I just thought it was, I thought it was over the top. Joe, I thought a lot of what he said was, was fairly reasonable. He's taken 500 test wickets. He's, he's got a right to feel angry. He's still doing okay. The bit that I actually have a problem with is there's one specific line where he said, I'm in England's best three bowlers. That's explicitly saying that he feels he's better than someone who's done better than him in the last 12 months. In the last 12 months, Ollie Robinson, Mark Wood and Anderson have been better than him. Uh, I, had, I had the same problem with his infamous Sky rant. Uh, where he, he was saying, he basically said he should be in the team. What he's basically saying there is, I should be playing ahead of Mark Wood, who was man of the match for England in two of their most recent test matches at the time. Um, is, that, is that almost like a glimpse in that newspaper column of why England might not want him around anymore? I was going to say exactly that, that. There is this idea permeating that him and Anderson feel that they're bigger than the team, whether that's fair or accurate or not. But this column has only reinforced that belief. And I, I'm like Phil said, I'm reticent to criticise uh, a sports person for wearing their heart on their sleeve and saying what they think because sometimes they can be extremely dull and we want more of that. But And I don't have a problem with him saying I think the decision is wrong in his newspaper column. I think that's also fine. But there are a few lines in there, the one you pick out absolutely, which just made me really cringe and I thought was probably quite revealing. And I don't think has done himself any favours at all, really. Um, I think he'd have had a there, were, there was so much, there's a massive wave of support for him and Anderson, perhaps Anderson in particular, 
out there after they got dropped. And I think this has maybe kind of lessened that a little bit. And now I think there'll be a lot of people thinking, yeah, go on, Fisher, go on, yeah. go, go and take some wickets and, and show that you're worth this call up. Uh, and if that is the end of Broad's career, then so be it, which would be sad because, as we said on the show last week, him and Anderson absolutely deserve the, the proper send-off if, if that can happen. And we all said we thought, I don't know, we all, Phil and I said we thought they probably would play again on balance. Uh, and I think this has maybe pushed it slightly the other way. Maybe for someone who's pretty canny, I don't think this was the smartest move, at least the way he presented it. Mm, yeah, just just to add just on the numbers, broad average 37 in Test cricket in 22-1. And if you include the two good Test matches he had at the start of this year, um, his average at the start of 2021 20, is still higher than Anderson, Robinson and Wood. Anderson and Robinson, by quite a long way, would just marginally. So, you know, great bowler. An all-time great bowler, but not an untouchable uh, bowler. And I think that's been shown over the last two or three years, really. Just going back to the, as you say, the infamous Sky interview. I agree, agree with you, uh, absolutely. And I felt it at the time. I thought it was excessive and I thought it was self-serving. And I thought it was disrespectful to other players within the within the setup. And it carries echoes of that here as well, I think. There's also something, I, I have a bit of an issue with the way that Broad always talks about him and Anderson as well, which is kind of adding weight to his argument, which they don't come as a pair. Obviously, they, yeah. have, they have bowled together for a long time. They both have unbelievable records. But again, this is probably part of the reason why both of them didn't go. Yeah. It would have been very hard to not take one and take the other because of exactly this stuff. So again, I think... I, I think it, it probably brings a bit of daylight between the two of them as well. And, you know, Anderson, by keeping Stumm, probably helps his cause, I think, as well. Um, because as implicitly... The the reading from that 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 piece from Broad is, as Joe says, there are clear power struggle issues at the top, uh, and by Anderson removing himself from the the noise, if you like, that probably helps him. I would say in the short to long term. Um, make no mistake, however strategically Broad may have gone about this one, they both desperate to get back in that side, and and there is something magnificent about that I suppose um just on the idea of deserving a proper send-off I know NASA was was saying that as well show a bit of respect for the loyalty that they've they've shown to English cricket and so on I don't personally I don't feel moved by that um uh, although it would be great and rousing if if they were to return at any point next summer uh but what what it does make me feel having reflected on it over the week and as I said last week I could kind of see there was a cold hard logic to it Michael Vaughan put it well actually you might need to go backwards before you can go forwards and this is a bloke who's played in dressing rooms of course with Anderson and Broad as well as Root and so on so anyway I can kind going, of understand going backwards it. from the last 12 months feels <laughs> sure sure <laughs> pretty depressing thought but. but then when you ain't got nothing you got nothing to lose <laughs> um but looking at it from a sort of emotional human perspective with their possible departure for good mm. goes the last. I was I, we were, I was writing it yesterday. We sent the magazine to print, and I was writing in the in the the leader column that with it's the last chain to the to this kind of vanishingly simpler time when a fast bowler knew what he was, knew what he was there for, and that the skills and disciplines required to turn a test match on a session or on a, on an afternoon was, was, was the all and the everything of your, your, your raison d'etre, if you like, the, your fundamental reason for, for existing as a professional sportsman is to bowl in test match cricket. And with their departure 
goes that that kind of unimpeachable authority of the test game and it's inconceivable now that any bowler now will come through and be only really that you know the nearest you're going to get is somebody like Ollie Robinson um but still Ollie Robinson will be playing white ball cricket if he's got half a chance Mark Wood is a good example you know Mark Wood is off to the IPL for fair play to him we've seen amount of money and then he'll be playing a test match in between all the other lucrative stuff that's the the reality now and with their departure goes that that kind of that more simpler time, I suppose. And there is a sort of, there is a, a poignancy to that, I think. Mm. I think. It's worth saying, and we've all kind of touched on it, a lot of people will be saying, hang on, journalists want players to be more open and honest. And I, and I think broadly, with, with what Broad's written, that's kind of fair. It's just the specific, for me at least, it's the specific kind of implied attack on his own teammates I have a, I have a problem with. Moving on, we obviously spent a lot of time on the last show talking about Broad and Anderson, we didn't, we, and we've kicked off with Broad again. Uh, I've got a question from Johnny who asked, what does Ben Folks have to do to secure the wicket-keeping spot for good? Assuming that his glove work is world-class, what does he have to average with the bat to stay there? Is it 30? Does he even stay with a, with a 26, 27? Um, Joe, what do you think? It's interesting he's gone for what does he need to average there because that is obviously is important. That's what we look at a lot. But I think we're looking for performances in games that England win that actually have something something about them, really like folks did at the start of his test career, which is why so many people are confused that he he got dropped. So yeah, I mean he can average thirty odd, but has he has he got has he scored hundreds or has he scored seventies and eighties in games that actually England win? Um, that was obviously a big frustration with Butler that the the amount of times he did that for England was really few and far between. Um, Best obviously did it with the gloves early days, but hasn't done for a while. Um, so yeah, but I think he's got a massive chance now, folks. I mean, he's well, he's 29. Um, people will say his, his chances come a bit belatedly, but there suddenly feels like there's actually not that many. Having had loads of keeping options with Butler, I I, I can't see Butler playing Test cricket again, to be honest. Uh, I think Bairstow, they have decided, is going to be a batter if he plays at all. Suddenly, there's not that much competition for the role. So th- this is this tour is a massive one for lots of players, but for folks in particular, because I think you know he could still have five, six years as a test cricketer ahead of him. Mm. And, um, it's, and it's the first time he's got a run as you're the number one, I think. I think that's fair to say. Like in, in Sri Lanka, it was always kind of, this, this never felt like a long-term thing. When you played in India last year, it never felt like it was a long-term thing. And this is the first time where you're like, okay, now you've got a stretch in the side to, to, to really own it. Absolutely. There was kind of a, an element of a horses for courses keeping selection, which was mm. like, you, know, you, you pick your best keeper in the, the most difficult conditions to keep wicket. And there was a logic to that. And then we had the rest of the rotation. Even when he slipped and fell and missed the first test last summer, he would have, unless he'd done really well, was probably going to make way for Butler again. So yeah, th- this is this is a chance that he hasn't really had before. Um, and it'll be, be fascinating to see if he lives up to the, the hype around him, really. Could I, could I just go back a bit to the Bearstow question? Because I I have a sneaky feeling that that is not off the table. Yeah. I was listening to... In fact, no, sorry, I was reading um, something on the, on the Mail's website. Uh, Bumble, I think NASA, Paul Newman as well. And they were talking about the composition of the squad and so on. And this was before it was announced. Um, and there seemed to be a, a feeling amongst them that Bearstow as keeper is not, not, not off the table yet. And the more I thought about it the other day when I was writing the folks thing who I interviewed last week and I was writing it for the magazine. Um, and we'll come to that, I guess, in a minute. But the more I was writing it, the less assured I was of the inevitability of folks taking over the gloves. Um, Bearstow 
famously didn't do that much wrong. They made a call on it uh, that Butler would be the better option. It played out probably not as they hoped. For sure, it didn't play out as they hoped. Uh, but Best, I was been seething ever since. Still thinks that he is a worthy Test match keeper bat. He's come back into the side flakily, but he obviously has that hundred um, in the Ashes now under his belt. So you assume that he will feature in, in in the West Indies. And I wonder if the same logic that resulted in Butler taking over will will possibly still come into the thinking this time round. I can I can say I don't necessarily agree with it, but I just no I, 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 I don't can think see it's off the table yet. I can see the logic. I, the reason I don't think it will happen is because there's been a big fanfare about the reset, the fresh start, and to go back again to Bearstow can he keep wicket and be a, a bit... I just... I think people will be like, what? So you've dropped Anderson and Broad at a fresh start and Bairstow is back as a keeper batter and we've been through this however many times. Sure. I, I probably would have gone down that route, to be honest. Well, I, as I said, I think there is logic to it. I think there is. But but, but, but you, you can see how quickly the conversation will come round if, if folks does start, mm. doesn't go great with the bat um, and Bairstow is playing... As a, obviously as a top six batter and going okay, you can hear within minutes that that conversation, the age-old, never-dying conversation of English cricket will come around again. And and I don't know. It would be interesting to see how Root goes on this one. A lot of that also comes down to how much they fancy either Pope or Lawrence. So one of Pope mm. or Lawrence won't play if Folks does. Yeah. 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 So if they're going to drop Folks, then that's to basically make room for... Pope or Lawrence, neither of which have made a compelling case. Obviously, Pope's had much more opportunity. That's what I, I don't think. There's they're knocking. I don't think either of those players are knocking down the door hard enough to to ensure that they both play. Mm-hmm. So that that's why I think folks will start. But I absolutely take that point. If 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 folks, I mean, I think we can be safe that his keeping will will be good and an uptick from what we've seen if he drops the, that yeah. <laughs> first morning. Yeah, it's quite. Interesting. I, I I wonder if another part of it is also. Another reason why I think I'd have gone best anyway is that England's tail is really bad at the moment. So if you're batting number seven, you're not going to get a whole lot of support. And folks bats higher up in the order for Surrey. He doesn't bat seven for Surrey. Um, he's, he's more of a classical middle order batter. So He talked to me about that and how different the game is. He says, if I'm going to play for England, and when he has played for England before, he bats seven or eight. He bats five, as you say, for Surrey. And he said to me, just they are completely different roles. And his challenge is to expand his game sufficiently to, to be able to bat at seven or eight, knowing that inevitably and quickly, bit this being England, you're going to be batting with the tail. Uh, he is an old-fashioned accumulator in many ways. He's, you know, not defensively minded, but he's pretty sound technically. Uh, he doesn't have a particularly expansive offside game. And he said, he, he said that to me, and he said that this has been something that he's been specifically working on, trying to expand that offside game. He's very strong through mid-wicket. He's the, he's the kind of cricketer that does well at, in, at county level, covers his stumps, gets in behind it against medium-fast swingers, and, and he does what he needs to do. Uh, if you are going to be a long-term effective test match player, then he knows as well as anybody what is required and, and his game, he feels, needs to get to that point. There have been times before that I was just remembering his test debut because obviously he got the 100 in the first dig and then second innings, 37 off 34 balls, hitting three sixes. So so the game is there. Yeah. Uh, also, worth adding as well on that, he made an unbeaten 65 in the following test match at Palakelli when Root made that amazing 100. Yeah. Butler 
reverse swept his way to 50-odd in a run of ball. Batting at eight there as well. He's batting at eight That's there, the, the but depth. they got up to 320-odd, I think, and it was enough on a bit of a dust bowl to win the game. Um, since then, it's been a bit of a struggle for him. He, he, you know, he, he was in the in the line of fire in India, as was everybody else, and nobody could score a run on those those dust bowls out there. But those two test matches initially suggested that he does have the kind of the big match temperament and all of that to be able to uh, to make important runs. And that's his reputation here. Uh, sorry, that's his reputation. He doesn't make hundreds. He makes important 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, and that's his thing. How, how do you reckon he'll go? His first class record is quite interesting. It's, it's good without being spectacular, and it's heavily weighted to scoring a lot of runs at the Oval. He averages something like 47 at the Oval and a lot, lot less away from the Oval. Like, you've watched a lot of him. Do you think he's got, got the game to thrive at, at test level as a seven? Um, seven and a half. Yeah. I think it'd be a great eight. <laughs> it'd be a brilliant eight. And again, you know, in a really successful side, say if Moeen Ali was still playing, he probably would be batting at eight. And then you think, this is a dream. You've got the, one of the best clubmen in the world uh, who will offer a, a kind of a sense of permanence in the, the mid to lower order. Seven will be a challenge for him, for sure. Uh, the, the, the burble around him is that he's, he's obviously gifted, as we know, with the gloves. That he doesn't play the quick quicks great, uh, and one or two people in the media, David Lloyd said it actually in the piece that I just referenced earlier, he said that the the rumour is, and I don't want to perpetuate this because it might be bollocks, but the rumour is that he's so obsessed with his keeping that the batting sometimes doesn't get the full focus that maybe it needs. I don't know if that's true, or even if there's any kernel of truth in it, I don't know. It seems a bit like kind of crappy media talk, to be honest. Uh, it slips into that narrative that that you talk about in your folks piece as well where you, where they're very crudely either the the, the batter who can't really catch or the brilliant keeper who can't really bat and the relative none of these reductive. players are any of those things it's <laughs> reductive yeah uh, it, i don't know i hope he starts i think he on balance he probably will uh and if he does as you said earlier he was all due to start wasn't he last summer um in, in an England shirt for the first time, first ever home test match it would have been, and then he slips on a sock. Slips on a sock, and he's out for three months. So if it does happen for him now, then it's hopefully the start of half a dozen to eight test matches at least. And if he struggles a bit with the bat initially, then so be it. You know, let the bloke figure it out for himself. Um, as I wrote in the thing, it's a very English anxiety to be in possession of a worldie and not really know what to do with him. I think in the absence of class, if you run through that, raw and ill-definable 16-man uh, squad to have somebody in there that is recognised world-class at least doing something is probably worth protecting and, and, and nurturing I would say. Joe, one new name in the squad is Matt Fisher, 24-year-old uh, uh, Yorkshire. He's been around for years, made his debut at 15 I think. That selection would have caught a lot of people by surprise. He wasn't really talked about as a as a England bowler in the near future I guess. What should people know about Matt Fisher? Well, yeah, so yeah, he debuted really young. And I think at that time, everyone had thought he'd have played quite a lot for England by now. But, you know, he's had, had the journey that a lot of young seamers do where he's had injuries. Uh, Yorkshire have also had a very strong pace attack through a lot of that period. So he's, he's played a lot more one-day cricket than he has Red Bull cricket. And I highlighted, I think he's only taken two five-wicket hauls in first-class cricket, which is one more than Saqib Mahmood as well. Um, but it was noticeable watching him last year. And I can't remember if it was the blast or the hundred. I think it was the hundred. 
and he was bowling, I think, about 87, 88 and bowled a really good spell. And I think it was Rob Key on commentary who said, he's one of those players who gets talked about for a long time and you suddenly see him and think, yeah, I get I get why there's been that hype around him. So it hasn't come from nowhere, but you're absolutely right. It was a, it was a surprise name. Um, and they've done what I think they should do, other than I wouldn't have dropped Anderson abroad. But if they're going to have these Lions tours and they're impressed by the players on them, then you pick those players. And I think given the question marks around how county cricket translates to test cricket, I think that's that's sensible to go with that Lions route. And it was why it was so bizarre that Dan Lawrence didn't get a chance in Australia having done so well for the Lions. So I think you need to reward players for those performances and, and the guys that stand out. But it is a punt. It is a punt. He hasn't, he hasn't taken many wickets in a first-class season before. And now he's potentially being asked to to bowl in a test match in the Caribbean. Um, but he, he's he's tall, he gets bounce, and he should suit Caribbean pitches. So it feels like a, a, a kind of good fit for the conditions, at least. And his recent first-class record when he's actually got on the pitch is really, really good. Over the last three seasons, the average is about 20 yes. when he's played. Yeah, I've got no problems with it. The more I, th- I think about it, the more I like it, uh, irrespective of who he's, whose place he's taken. <laughs> we don't have to keep going back to it. I like it. It's a free hit. Uh, it's it's an interesting option. It might be that he plays one game. It might be that he doesn't play at all. But uh, I think England's think tank need to have a look at him properly. Uh, and as Joe says, he's got the components. You know, he's got he's got the the raw materials. Uh, so I I like it. I think it's an interesting option. He he was as Joe said, absolutely. Uh, he was going to break all records at sixteen year old. You know, and obviously he was. Sort of unusually well-developed physically for, for his age. Um, I don't have an issue with the preponderance of one-day cricket in the early part of his career because I think these days you need to develop all of those skills, all of those extra elements to your game. Um, and then once you've gone through that process of learning, then you can settle in to, to the Red Bull stuff as well. A similar story to Saki Bamu. It's really similar. They're almost identical in ages. Yeah, their first class records that. are identical. And also in both cases, they play for counties who've got really good attacks. So even when you are fit and both teams challenging the top end of the division, quite hard to get into that side. And at the time of bowlers at both the counties, which have great seam attacks that aren't necessarily the best suited to those pitches. So if you've got, say, Toby Bailey at Lancashire, who is just ready-made for English screen seamers, then... Mahmood sort of sits in below him at county level when clearly he's more suited to test level than someone like Bailey. Just another aside as well, which I kind of keep coming back to with these bowlers. Fisher doesn't really bat. He's slightly better than Mahmood. Got an average kind of 12, 13 first-class cricket. This is becoming an issue, really, because yeah. if we're, especially if we've got slight concerns at folks at number seven, is he going to is he going to be a kind of a, a gun batsman at number seven? Probably not. Probably serviceable. Um, Chris Woke suddenly becomes very important again. Or it's Overton, but they need a number eight. You can't just put Ollie Robinson there and hope for the best when your top seven can't get any runs. That, that, yeah, Wokes becomes ever more valuable in that setup. It makes perfect sense to me why he's in the side. I know he took six wickets at 50 in Australia. I know that his record away from home is poor. But I also am convinced that he's a well-rounded enough cricketer to do a job, whether it's a containing job, whether it's a support act, uh, whether it's it's a kind of a player who chips in here and there and waits to get in home conditions where his record is superior in terms of average, at least, even to the big two. Uh, but as Joe said, a rudderless lower order, a kind of late 90s rudderless lower order, is crying out for somebody who can actually bat an hour or two 
um, and maybe even affect a game with a 40-odd or a 50-odd. And that's where Wokes becomes absolutely indispensable in a side that doesn't have now Moe Nally, for example. So, yeah, he, he's essential, even if he is broadly neutered in certain conditions away from home. I can't wait for England to pick the exactly, exact same attack in the first test in West Indies they did they might get another column from Broad (laughs) after that (laughs) Um, and Joe another player who not many people were talking about last summer who's in the squad is Alex Lees Uh, and again quite similar to Fisher that he's been talked about for years when he was 20 or 21 at Yorkshire Geoffrey Boycott was calling him the next England opener etc scored a massive double hundred very early in his career Um, but now he's in this now he's in the side I guess quite similar impressed when he's with the Lions maybe not necessarily in the number of runs he scored with the Lions but he's there now um quite weird in terms of all the headlines about Braun and Anderson uh, and also because Lees was reported to be in the squad so early on it's not really been talked about that much but it is quite an interesting elevation yeah I think there might also be a bit of fatigue with England openers it's just like all right we'll we'll, we'll see how the next one goes um he's got a remarkably similar story to Dom Sibley in that again he was Talked about very highly in his team. He's got a big score early doors. Success with Yorkshire won county championships with Yorkshire. Ended up being captain, uh, and then his form completely collapsed. I mean, there was I can't remember what year it was. Maybe 2018, possibly. Yeah. Uh, and he basically had a Hamid of a year. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't that far off the numbers. Um, and it was very strange for a player who had looked so solid and compact in his in his early career. Uh, and then it, even when he went to Durham, it was it was kind of slow going to start with, but his numbers have picked up a lot over the last few years. They're still not staggering numbers. They're nowhere near the numbers that Sibley was churning out before he got his test call up. He's Lee's scored two hundreds in his last two across his last two seasons, albeit one was abbreviated for COVID. So he's got a good solid record, but it is not prolific. Um, so I would just say, <laughs> not that anyone is expecting England to open out, go out there and rattle off century after century, but. We've got a, we've got to accept that you know if he averages thirty-five, then that's really good. That's really good. Yeah. If he aver- thirty-five, you take that. Yeah, well, absolutely. <laughs> I was going to say. Well, I was going to say if he averages thirty, then that's better than fine. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Which it, yeah sounds no. all a bit bleak, but I think we we do have to adjust. And and if he does get a score early doors, as as Sibley managed to, um, to not start saying he's the saviour because he will then probably have a series where he barely gets a run. That's just what it is opening the back yeah. in test cricket these days, unless you're one of the very, very best and there are only a few of them around. Yeah, I mean, if you take it on a on an odds level from the time that Strauss retired, you think about the number of players that England have gone through and then had to jettison from, you know, Robson to Stoneman to Compton Good to sport Sibley quiz. to Hamid to Burns and all the rest. Uh He's he's a twelve to one shot that that he can you know that he can have a year a year long career if you look at what up, what's happened preceding him, but that in a weird kind of way possibly frees us up a bit and hopefully will free him up. You know he's a he's a, he's been around the block now quite a few years as Joe said he's he's gone through what most English batters go through yeah. which is a lost year or two, it, yeah. uh, doing the hardest thing in sport as that reader um, that listener suggested from a few, couple of weeks ago um so yeah it feels a bit of a bit bit of a bit of an open open hit you know hopefully he's got the right kind of the minerals you know he was as you say very highly regarded early on for his temperament as much as his technique when he was at Yorkshire that fell away I think there were some issues around behind the scenes as well He's certainly been freed up at Durham. Um, it makes sense that it would that it's it's his go. Yeah, it so makes sense. 
Oh, so we're about to play the interview now. I think the most interesting thing he said, so I put to him what Zach Crawley said about opening in England. And he said, Crawley basically said, averaging 35 is very good now. I put that to Lees and he said, well, no, it is possible to average more than that. And he said, well, if you take out my like really bad year, which <laughs> I guess a lot of players would like to take out their really bad year or two. Um, he said, well, I do average 40 across the whole of my career. And as, as you'll hear, um, that last year at Yorkshire was, was quite complicated. Um, which is quite interesting. I, I, um, I think the, the pace that he goes about his innings will be interesting as well because he is not a, a free-flowing batter, but he is much more so than Sibley, certainly. Uh, more than Burns, really, probably. Uh, Lee's got a lot of runs in the one-day cup for Durham last year, which, you know, is, is, is no indicator of performing well at test level. But we have got a bit stuck between someone like Crawley who goes out and plays his shots and people like Sibley who haven't got enough shots to survive, basically. So hopefully, Leeds fits somewhere in the middle of those two. But but yeah, as we said, there's no guarantees. Anyway, let's let's hear from the man himself. If we go back a few years, what was it about Durham that stood out for you? There were a few um, factors that sort of, you know, definitely sent me this way. Um, I think so at the time, so I was due, uh, I was due to get married at the time. Um, so in that um, winter... So I think uh, one of the things was uh, my family and friends really are all uh, West Yorkshire based um, or like North Yorkshire. Like, uh, so I wanted uh, my wife and myself to have access to uh, our friends and family really for getting back. Um, secondly, um, there'd been some top order players previously who had played for England. So Jennings, um, Stoneman, um, who had done really well at Durham and, and got runs. Uh, personally, I'd got runs at, at Durham for Yorkshire. So I had like a uh, um, vicarious uh, experience um, of playing at, at Riverside. Um, and then I think, you know, the other thing is they produce England players. And, um, you know, I, even though I'd played really, really poorly for probably 18 months, um, that was still always my ambition because uh, I'd have been 26, 25, 26 at the time that, you know, if I could, you know, get back to somewhere near or if not better, that, you know, that was still on my radar. Um, and then the last thing was, you know, Durham have won stuff over the years, you know, for a club, you know, with relatively um, short period of time, I think it's 30th uh, anniversary this year, um, you know, they've won trophies and ultimately you want to win stuff as a player and, you know, that was the sort of final uh, thing that I thought it all um, combined together um, and obviously some batters would think I'm pretty mad but you know I'd, I'd done well at Durham and the obvious thing too is if you do well at Durham as a batter you might get noticed a little bit more than maybe getting runs elsewhere so so yeah they were the, they were the reasons mm. um, you, you mentioned that tricky 18 month period with the benefit of hindsight now you're 28. Why do you think things didn't quite go as smoothly as you'd have liked it towards the end of your Yorkshire days? Yeah, I mean, um, probably won't go into too much detail, but I think there's there's an obvious there's a change of of, of management um, at Yorkshire at the time. I think I'd obviously flourished under uh, Jason Gillespie. Um, you know, I think unfortunately sometimes in, in it can be in any sort of industry you can not quite get on with people or, um, you know, have challenging circumstances around that if it's in sport or business or, you know, wherever it may be. And I think, um, you know, that sort of underlying, uh, that sort of area was, you know, 
ultimately, you know, one of the biggest re- reasons um, um, why I probably didn't play as well as I'd done the previous five years. Um, um, like I say, the details of it are probably not that that appropriate. Um, but you know, it was just it was a real challenging time for me, and uh, I think initially, obviously, you look at it now and. Um, you know, I always think, obviously, if, if Dizzy had stayed, you know, I'd, uh, you know, I could have played 20, 30 tests, or, or, or I might not have, you know, I might have also been poor, but then I think, you know, on the reflection, I think what I've done well is, is I've used, you know, that real challenging period, and, you know, I've probably learned from that hard time now with my batting, and I'd say the last three years, I've been probably as consistent as I've ever been, so... I just want to use that bad experience probably I had there for that 18, 20 month period and, um, you know, use it to improve really. You mentioned the word consistent quite a lot. Um, we, always on occasion, we like tweet out like numbers of batsmen in the country. Mm. And Marcus North, without fail, will mention your name mm. in the replies like, every single time. Uh, so, what what have you done since the dome that you think has got that consistency back into your game? Is there anything technically that you've been, you've worked on since you joined the club? Yeah, what what, what do you think helped to get to that place? Yeah, I think I think as a batsman, I think you're always tweaking on stuff um, technically. I think fundamentally, I haven't changed anything massively, um, but I'm always like you always tweak and obviously try and improve because uh, at the end of the day, you know, you want better uh, better results. Um, but I think the biggest thing is, um, like I say, probably really learning from that bad experience and probably mental, mentally being able to deal with like failure, and maybe difficult challenges with within like a disagreement or a bowler. It might even be a challenge of a bowler that might, you know, have good success against you. I think what I've probably built up a little bit more mental resilience up here. Um, I think. Uh, particularly with uh, Marcus and uh, James uh, Franklin, I think as well. Like w- there's, we've had a lot of good uh, conversation as well around tactics, and like um, a bit more in-game chat. You know, I think sometimes as as players and probably coaches are sometimes um, driven mainly by like maybe the technique or. Whereas, you know, the strongest and the biggest asset anybody has is always your mind, in my opinion. Um, and I've probably just, you know, worked on worked on that a little bit more. I think the other thing too is that, uh, you probably mature as you get older. You know, I'm 20, like I say, I'm 28. I'm hoping that if I stay fit and keep getting my runs, you know, I could potentially play another 10 years. Um, I got married. I've got a couple of children now. I think, you know, life experiences also of like, uh, make probably force you to be a little bit more level, like in general. Um, and I think just, just you know, I've enjoyed my cricket. You know, I obviously started off really well uh, in my career, and then like I said, that challenge, and then back to enjoying it. Um, and you know, it's just it's you know, it's been very very simple. Um, you know, I just need I know what I need to do, and um, you know, I just try and keep my head down and crack on to be honest mm. you talk about like um, incorporating different tactics into your game is there anything in particular that you think uh, a certain mindset has, has 
has it helped you as a batter in the last year or so? Yeah, I just think probably, like I say, probably the detail around the threats of certain bowlers or individuals and then actually having the courage to do that. So, um, you know, for example, it, obviously in English wickets, and I know it's been widely talked about at the minute, but, you know, the, the obvious uh, danger is, you know, is particularly April, May, you know, is you're protecting your front pad, you know, big, big C movement, lateral movement, probably not as much swing bowlers anymore. So, you know, you, you, you're protecting your stumps more often than not, you know. So, like, for around the wicket bowlers, depending on where they are on the crease, for example, I've adopted, not to everyone, but depending on, like, their style, I've batted, like, a foot outside off stump and a foot outside my crease to try and get to outside line of off stump. Or, you know, uh, in parts of my innings, like I say, it might be a pretty good wicket and all they're trying to do is get your LB and so I'll change, I'll move to maybe like middle or leg stump or, you know, and I think that sort of, uh, the batsmanship, the sort of fluidity that I have as well has probably changed a little bit. I think obviously you're younger and maybe even the characteristics of, of Yorkshiremen <laughs> in general is sometimes there's that stubbornness around, this is how we do it, this is what we should do and I'm not saying that's always always the case when I played at Yorkshire because it definitely wasn't. But, you know, sometimes there's that sort of ingrained, it might have been in my own character. Just maybe having that fluidity around around your game too and then actually being brave enough to, to do it. Mm. That's really easy. I mean, look, oh yeah, as you say, everyone's talking about pitches at the moment. Um, Zach Pauly said the other day that he said that pitches have been very favourable to bowlers my whole career. Um, I feel like a good average is lower than it used to be. I think 30, averaging 34 is a very good average for an opener these days. And that's something that's very different from 10 years ago. You've been playing county cricket now for eight, nine years. Do you, do you mm -hmm. think that pitches are known to be different than when you first came on the scene in the early 2010s? I think the, obviously the biggest thing, and I don't think it's anything new that anybody else has said, is obviously just the time and of year and it's not necessarily that we didn't play in April or May but it's obviously the number of games has obviously changed so I think that's one of the biggest reasons um, I think when I started playing there was probably more of an even spread throughout the year um, which is a big thing um, yeah I mean I'm, I'm, I'm of an opinion now I think the English first class wickets maybe obviously have different challenges to maybe what test cricket does have but and I still go back to that, you know, for me and for anybody else, I'm just trying to negate the challenges on that wicket. Um, you know, they probably, it's, I don't know if it's the wickets or maybe it's the time of year, but it certainly hasn't uh, always been that um, great. I remember at the start of my career, you used to, if you had to work hard for a good 30 overs, you knew that you could really make a big score. And I think as batters, you could learn how to make big innings. Um, and that's still obviously at Leeds, which is still, you know, quite bowler friendly. So, you know, that's probably, I think the difference now is maybe that you, you always, not everywhere, but maybe sometimes you always feel that there's a, there could be a delivery that you could get out to. Whereas maybe um, before then, Maybe, you know, you might have a better way. It's like, maybe we're not getting this guy out. But, you know, I still look at it now and, you know, you take those two years out where I was really poor, I think, you know, I personally, you know, I feel being fortunate. I think I still, even back in 2016, I averaged just over 40. 
I think, you know, if I take those two years where I played really poorly, I think I'd probably still average over 40. Um, so it's not impossible. I do think it is challenging. Though. And obviously, um, I think it's just, um, I think really good team bowlers, obviously, I think they're almost guaranteed to get the reward now. Mm. Whereas I think when I started batting too, I think there was a lot more like swing bowling or a little bit more maybe planned bowling. So like you might have a batsman where I'm going to bowl away swingers and then try and bowl a seamer, run it back in. Whereas now I think majority, and it won't be everyone's, but majority of bowlers' plans are literally, I'm going to run up, present the seam, top of off, and hopefully I'll get my wickets. So, yeah, I mean... Um, unfortunately it is what it is though you know I, I know that's what, what it's going to be and mm. like I said to you for me I'm just trying to negate that and get my runs because it's not necessarily going to change immediately so I'm almost prefer not to waste my energy on on that personally Elsewhere in the English game, uh, the MCC have removed the Oxford versus Cambridge and Eton versus Harrow matches from their annual rotation of matches from next year. Um, yeah, overdue. <laughs> not, not, not really ever really understood that to be honest. Um, like it should surely be an honour to play at Lords and Oxford and Cambridge aren't the best two universities at playing cricket. It's not an even close to scandal, sir. <laughs> okay, moving on. We've had the IPL auction this week. Sinon Gavaska described it as more exciting than the ODI series that took place between India and West Indies. Liam Livingston was the most expensive overseas player, bagging over a million quid. Uh, Joffre Archer, yeah. despite being unlikely to play this year, went for around 700k. Mark Wood took home 700k, Bairstow 660, Roy 200, Tamar Mills at the Mumbai Indians for 150. Um, Alex Hales has gone to KKR, Owen Morgan was not picked up, uh, which is quite interesting. Um, there are also deals with Sam Billings, David Willey, Chris Jordan, and most interestingly, I think Benny, Benny Howell. Howell. Yeah, great um, stuff. Yeah, I mean the 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 data man Dan Weston, who people might know from Twitter, uh, he he was involved with the Punjab Kings, and his his fingerprints are all over that signing, and also a lot of their other signings in Liam Livingston as well. His big thing is kind of six hitting percentage and your uh, non boundary strike rate. Um, he's quite big on that. He worked with Birmingham Phoenix in the 100. He's, he's obviously done pretty well. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see if Howell gets a game. Um, and no deals, as I mentioned, for not only Owen Morgan, but Dowd Milan and Adil Rashid. Um, and we had a question on Adil Rashid's non, uh, non-signing. James asked, long-time listener, first-time emailer. Firstly, love the podcast. Romance, geekery and speculation in perfect Harmony. This um, geekery word keeps cropping up. I, I just think they mean Ben. I assume they mean Ben. I think I think I'm I, I, I'm I play my part in that description as well. I, think. I fear that we're not outside that description either, Joe. We are doing a second podcast, so I think. Yeah, I think if he wanted, we're in, to we're be, in the tent. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, anyway, James asked, would like to hear your views on why Rashid never gets an IPL contract. I, for me, it's quite simple. If you look through the whole auction, only three mystery spinners got picked up. Overseas mystery spinners, that is. There are a lot of domestic ones who are pretty good. Um, the three are Tikshana from Sri Lanka, had a really good T20 World Cup, and he is a genuine mystery spinner. Um, Nur Ahmad, the 17-year-old Afghan, uh, he's, a, he's a left left armour as well, so that's something different. And then Hasaranga, who bats six or seven, even as the competition's expanded, that's not what teams are going after. If you look at the players who went for the most money, they're generally people who, who can bat five or six. That's what teams are going after. There, there isn't that many of there aren't many of those players 
in India at the moment. Just look at their national team. They're desperate to finish like the to, to fill the finisher role. He did get a gig in the phase two of the last IPL, yeah. didn't he? And, and he I think both three expensive overs yeah. and that and that was that. It's just, it's a real shame. I absolutely understand the reasons why yeah. he's, he's not there. It's all to do with supply and demand, but it is a real shame not to see him test himself mm. out there because you know we know he would do well from yeah. from seeing his record over the last five, six, even longer years. Um, but yeah, it's, and it's the same. I mean, it's interesting to see Hales get picked up because it's often the same for opening batters that there is such a plethora of them out there. It's quite hard to get a gig if, if, if that's your role. Whereas if you're a sort of middle order hitter, which there aren't so many in Indian cricket or in T20 cricket in general, then as we've seen with Livingston, you get the big bucks. Mm, absolutely. Here's uh, what Mark Butcher thinks on the expanded IPL. There are two more teams now in the 2022 competition. And uh, Will Smead's 99 in the Pakistan Super League. Good to have you on, Butch. Um, slightly different track this week to, to normal. First of all, in the IPL, we've had the auction this week. Um, plenty of headline signings. Liam Livingston is now a very rich man. Um, I want to ask you on just the general expansion of the IPL. This year, we'll have 10 teams rather than eight teams. What do you think about that expansion? Do you think it potentially means that the quality of the tournament will decrease a little bit with a diluted domestic talent pool spread even more thinly across the 10 sides competing in it? It's uh, Yeah, I mean, it certainly is possible. Um, but IPL has had 10 teams before. Uh, and it didn't work on, on many levels, really. The first one being that it made, made a tournament that is already very long, inexcusably so. Um, and as you say, the kind of you, you start to you start to have to spread things a little bit thinner. Um, we know all about this because we've always had eighteen teams, so you know we know, we understand how this works. You spread the spread the talent um, ever thinner. You spread the overseas players ever thinner. Still, no Pakistan players involved in it. That would help, but you know that's that's a story for another time. We, we might need another another couple of hours to go in, to go there. Um, and suddenly, um, the the the, I suppose the intrigue doesn't go away because it means there are more players, more headlines to be made with auctions, more, more millionaires to be made and all that kind of stuff. But what it does in terms of the pure cricketing um, uh, side of things, if, it's an, if, if the previous times we've had 10 teams in the IPL is anything to go by, you will end up with a couple of things. One is uh, one-sided contests. You'll also end up with, um, and this is something that was, was huge in the first, I don't know, probably five or six editions of the IPL, whereby you had the greats of the game um, absolutely battering the sort of, you know, the, the poor defenseless, defenseless, uh, defenseless gazelles, um, you know, straight out of, um, you know, Indian leagues or whatever it might be. Um, and so then, also, so the extraordinary became commonplace in the early days of the IPL. Whereas I think from about, I don't know, 2014, 2013, 2014 onwards, um, the competition settled into being what it was, which is the, the best slugging it out against the best. So it's going to be, it'll be fascinating to see to see what happens. One one thing one thing we know one hundred percent for sure is that it's going to be long. It's going to be you know for those for those people who are, who um, follow it religiously, they're going to be they're going to be tested at times. I think over the course of the, the tournament, um, and you know will will the standards that the IPO has set for itself um, be able to be maintained with the, with that different that very different feel of, of not quite having. Um, you know the, the sides as jam packed with 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 marquee names as they might have been in the past. Mm. And and I guess like the, the IPL will still be a brilliant competition. There's no doubt about that. But just on individual games, I kind of worry that 
you know, Rashi Khan is, is one of the most thrilling bowlers to, work, to watch in the world in T20 cricket. But if he's up against two world-class batters, you know, you know what? If we can get through these four overs from Rashi Khan more than normal, we can properly cash in on the other guys. Could we just end up having slightly less thrilling cricket across the whole competition in a way that we just haven't actually been used to in the IPL for quite a long time? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it is entirely possible. It is entirely possible that the the the, the, the metrics of everything become you know, it becomes easier for you to kind of go okay well we'll we'll shut this guy down and we'll batter um, X Y and Z. Um, however, I I think one of the things that we've seen with T Twenty cricket as it's evolved, there hasn't been an enormous amount of of that happen um, because basically because teams are able to because teams are able to score score so many runs or the scoring rates if the pitches are decent are so high. You can't really afford to give anybody, you know, allow anybody to go and run a ball. So, look, I, I, don't, I don't think it will have that much of an effect. I really don't. Um, not on those individual um, battles. But across the board, you might find things are not quite as sharp as, as they once were. Mm. Uh, moving from the IPL to the PSL, one of the standout performances this week was from 20-year-old English batter Will Smead from Somerset. He's only played four games so far in this competition. He's got scores of 97 and 99. Um, he's not yet played a first-class game, but Butch, how, how excited should we be from an English perspective? But also, PSL is one of the hardest leagues in the world. So for a 20-year-old to go there, a lot of very good English batters have gone to the PSL in recent times and not actually done that well. Should, should we almost put, count these performances more, put more emphasis on these performances than we otherwise would in overseas leagues? It's it's incredibly unusual. It's not so unusual for for a, a relatively unknown overseas batter to come, say, to England and, and kind of in, and impress everybody and, and end up with a great international career off the back of, you know, you only have to go back to, to the likes of Wakar Yunus or whatever back in the in the nineties. First appear, you know, blowing people's toes off for fun in county cricket. Um, you know, Sakrain was was known. They were all kind of you know they all had had small reputations, but not outside of. Um, you know, not outside of where they were playing their first-class cricket, and then you come and do well in England, and then suddenly you you're exported back a little bit, like the Jimi Hendrix experience, for example, um, <laughs> being exported back to America from having made it in England. Um, so, so it was it's usual to go that way round, but very very unusual to do it from the way round of of, um, of being an English player making his name in that way in a, an overseas league. And there there have always been reasons behind that. I mean, it's only been since the, the T20 era. That English players could go. English players who were not playing into international cricket could go and play professional cricket overseas. You know, that that was always England was the place where people came to earn their money when they weren't playing for their national side. Um, and uh, you know, and, and English players, if you weren't playing international cricket, you were you were playing club cricket elsewhere if you could get a gig. Um, you, the, the, you didn't have the opportunity to go away and show your wares in professional um, in professional leagues. So that has been. A massive game changer. Will Smead is somebody who, who who stands out because before he has made his name as a, as, a, as an international player, he is he's causing waves in, in the PSL against um, what are you know what is pretty much widely thought of as being the the, the most um, the most testing fast bowling batteries that you find in any of these leagues. You know the, the quicks coming out of Pakistan is just like a never-ending conveyor belt and so life is it can be very very difficult for top order players um in Pakistan so it, it's a that's not something that, I can't think of that ever happening to an English player before can you can you think of a, of a time when a, a non-capped a non English player has gone and done 
something quite so eye-catching in a professional league at overseas. So, I mean, just thinking this winter, there have been a few. Like, Laurie Evans had an amazing big bash. Um, yeah. Jake Linter still doing really well in the Bangladesh Premier League and stuff like that. But P- the PSL is widely regarded as the second most competitive league after the IPL. Laurie, Laurie Evans, Laurie, and you're right, so, and, I, and, I, and I'm very remiss not to have remembered my old mate, Laurie, but I suppose you could say that he's he's been around for a heck of a lot longer. You know, Will Smead, yeah. as you say, is... He's completely, um, uh, he's a complete newbie, uh, yeah. despite, uh, despite everyone from Somerset saying that he's fantastic and despite what we saw from him in the, in the 100 last year. I mean, out, outside of a, of a relatively small pool of, um, of, of viewing, of the viewing public, he's completely unknown. Um, and so that, that is, that's staggering in itself. There are a lot of young English batters out there in the PSL at the moment. And the two guys who've really impressed, aside from Smead, are the two really established England openers in Alex Hales, I know he's not part of the England squad at the moment, and Jason Roy. Um, Smead's put in two performances that a lot of really highly rated young English batters haven't actually put in yet. So I kind of wonder that if you're a England batter who's not part of that first team setup, the next time England have a series like the West Indies one just gone and you've got quite a few first team players missing... I think I'd quite like to see Smead overtake quite a few players in that pecking order and get a go. Tom Banton, Tom Banton, his Somerset teammate, is actually, he's three years older than Smead and he's played a lot of these leagues and not impressed in the same way. Um, and it'd be harsh maybe on Banton who had that one really good innings in the West Indies. But I think what Smead's doing now at the age of 20, I think you do have to look at that and be like, that, that's, that, that's suggesting a higher ceiling than, than those around him. Yeah, for sure. I, uh, I wouldn't disagree with that. You know, the whole thing, the, the interesting thing about it is that in, in England, in English cricket, we're still not quite used to the idea that how, of how dog-eat-dog um, being a gun for hire is. Do you know what I mean? It's all kind of, oh, opportunities here and, you know, he deserves a little bit more of this and a bit more of that. The, the, these, these team owners who are paying top dollar for you to come and play, if you don't do it, they, you're not coming back, you know. So, so there's a lot of pressure on, on, on these youngsters um, going out there to make their name. And so, so, again, that's another reason to sort of say, you know, Will, Will Smead is, is somebody who perhaps didn't, they didn't have massive expectations for, but still, in order, in order for him to get an invite back next year, you know, maybe, maybe the odd 50 at the top of the order, not, not narrowly missing out on hundreds twice and playing in a, in a manner that, uh, that Sir Viv would be happy with back in the day. Mm, I, I think we, we can safely say that he will be back in the PSL next year. I think, um, I think so. Anyway, cheers, Butch, for your time. Chat to you next week. I, I haven't heard Butch's thing. Um, although I gather you've just pop, popped it in there, but I saw Will Smead's knock. Um, and also apparently he made a 97 as before the 99, right? Yeah. Yeah, I didn't see that. Against but, the same opposition. Right, but I saw the 99. That. Stirring stuff. That's all, that's all I've got, really, but just stirring stuff. You know, he's about six years old um, and he looks like he's been doing it for a long time. He's got massive arms. I think that's worth noting. That, Huge that's a, arms that's for a Ben comment, arms. if yeah. ever I've heard one. Um, um, Ben's unhealthily obsessed with men's arms. <laughs> uh and uh, James Vince can't score a run, literally can't score a run. He's, he's, he's gone duck, duck. Uh, and Liam Livingston as well got cleaned up second ball by Nazim Shah. One of the good ball. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it would have cleaned up a lot of <laughs> I think, players. I think Vince got done for uh, first or second ball from Shaheen as well. Yeah, like, can't indeed, hold your hands yeah. up a little bit. Yeah, like this vicious break back at 94, 94 mile. And now I'm enjoying it though. That's my overall point. It's, it's an empty point, but I'm really enjoying the, the PSL, the bits that I've caught. And it's lovely to hear. Hear, hear our boy Gower as well on, yeah. on the commentary. It's just so... Just elevates every cricket. Exactly that. Involved, that. Involved exactly in, yeah. that. It's so weirdly incongruous and totally beautiful at the same time.
Um, at the time of recording, we're one day into the first test between New Zealand and South Africa. Um, and we were saying before the series how this could be really even. New Zealand aren't quite as good as they have been recently. South Africa an improved side. Um, so naturally, South Africa were bowled out for 95 on the first day and New Zealand reached stumps on 116 for three. Matt Henry took seven for 23. He's had a quite a weird international career in that he obviously looks quite good, but his test record's really quite bad. Uh, he averaged 45 or something before this test match. He only really comes in when one of the big three are injured, which Trent Bolt is in, in this instance. Yeah, it is odd. He's got a better record in white ball cricket, but we've seen in, in county cricket over here, when conditions are in his favour, he's he's pretty much unplayable. I mean, there was the year for Kent, probably three, four years ago, where he was averaging about 14 for the year in, in county championship cricket. Um, so yeah, it's good to see him get a chance. It's a bit of a shame that South Africa got a couple of injuries there. Keegan Peterson is so good against India. That's that's a big a big loss for them. And still no Nokia as well. So it's a shame it's not a full-strength New Zealand against full-strength South Africa. Um, I still think, I know that's a terrible first day of South Africa, I still think it'll be a close series. Australia currently 3-0 up in a five-match T20i series against Sri Lanka at home. The second game went to a super over. Josh Hazelwood conceded just five runs from that. Tikshana, who we mentioned earlier in the show, he took an economical three for in the third game, continuing his excellent form from the World Cup. Josh Inglis made his international debut in the series opener and he hit a nice 48 in that super over game. Um, some more worrying news around young Aussie opener Will Pekowski. Uh, he is experiencing concussion symptoms for the 11th time in his career after being struck in the head by a volleyball. Cricket Victoria Chief Executive Nick Cummins said Pekowski was struck during a game of solleyball, a hybrid of soccer and volleyball, played in warm-ups before training sessions. Victoria coach Chris Rogers said it was far too early to speculate whether or not this latest concussion could force Pekowski to retire. The fact that he hasn't ruled that out speaks for itself. It's yeah. a terribly sad story, this. Our heart goes out to him. India beat West Indies in an ODI series 3-0. Uh, That's as, all you can say. I just broke down. None of the games were close or interesting. Um, <laughs> exactly that. But Kohli had a and really also bad... Em- empty stadia as well. Mm. You know, the whole thing was grim. Yeah. Funereal. I guess it was quite interesting that Kohli had like a really bad series. He averaged eight across the three games and he didn't get that many in the first T20i, which India... Again, one comfortably. Uh, Alex asked, what's happened to Kohli? Ever since the 2019 <laughs> World Cup, he's been in a bit of a funk. Though numbers have been respectable in T20Is and ODIs, his test numbers have collapsed. Albeit he's played some good innings in tough conditions, but they're only 50, 50s. Uh, will we see another big run fest post-captaincy? Uh, he's too good not to at some stage. He batted quite well again in South Africa. Well, that's what I was going to come to. Really difficult conditions, which echo what's what test cricket has been like over the last two or three years you know pitches have have been very very challenging and fast bowlers uh with the new wobble seam revolution at full in full cry have been very difficult to deal with obviously he'll be fine uh there were echoes again in south africa of this this problem on the sixth seventh stump line where he's trying to defend to extra cover uh but to pick holes in cody's technique is is, is not for us to do, I would say. The, the most obvious theory, and it's all speculation, is that there's just been an overload in the bloke's head. Even somebody as, as, as almost laboratory perfect for, to, to cope with the challenges of international cricket and all the rest of it and the scrutiny and the pressure that goes with it, even he probably has a threshold. Even he probably gets to a point where it becomes challenging psychologically and especially when you've dragged your test team to the absolute summit and then you go to South Africa to for your own 
confirmation, if you like, and uh, and then it all falls away um, out of nowhere. And and that coinciding with his issues with the BCCI regarding how they announced the loss of the captaincy for the white ball side and so on, and how that was dealt with behind the scenes, has probably got is probably eaten away at the bloke. He is a human being, and he has given more than strictly necessary to the cause for a number of years. If he's going through a transitional period in his own head, then naturally he's not going to be the machine-like player out there on the pitch. He will still end up with 100 international hundreds, I think. Do you reckon? Well, I mean, I've just said that. But you'll certainly, I think he'll end up with more ODI hundreds than Sachin, let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, in the three years before this funk, he scored, I think, 28 or 29 international hundreds, which is completely insane. He'll be fine. Yeah, I think he'll be okay. On the T20I, there's a debut for Ravi Bishnoi, who uh, has been hyped for a while ever since um, being the star of the Under-19 World Cup a few years ago. By you personally? By I me think. personally. Yes, I mean, you picked he, him out he as did, your player to watch. He from... did take four for nothing in the final and nearly won it by himself, so it wasn't Very exactly insightful. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, he's quite an interesting bowler. He's like, he bowls loads of googlies, and a lot of the googlies are like quite ugly googlies. They're quite fast. Um, particularly when he's bowling to left, he just throws it really wide and he's very skiddy, so it just doesn't bounce much. So quite often they're like quite bad balls that bounce less than the batter expects. But he does mix it up with some like traditionally beautiful tossed up leggies as well. So he's a interesting bowler to watch. Got a really, really good IPL record. Um, and the other thing from that game is Surya Kumar Yadav just kind of finished the game with, with real joy. class. So he's played 12 T20 eyes now for India. India have won 11 out of the 12. And he has a strike rate of over 150 and an average of 40. I think he's so good. So, yeah. so good. It's it's no great um, revelation that mm. India produce beautiful batsmen to watch. Uh, but there seems like there is so many coming through that are not just prolific, mm. but gorgeous. And he is one of them. He's like 30 as well. Where, where, yeah, where's he been? This is it. He, he's, he's been in the shadows at Mumbai Indians until mm. maybe two or three years ago. Uh, but one day, Rohit Sharma won't be doing what Rohit mm. Sharma does. And I can see that boy taking over the mantle just as he took over from VVS and mm. so on. I can see him taking, on, taking it on because there is something quite special about the way he hits a cricket ball. Mm. Um, and ahead of the Women's World Cup, New Zealand are 2-0 up against India at the moment. Amelia Kerr scored an unbeaten 100 in the second game, helping them chase 270, getting over the line with her sister Jess at the crease with her in front of their parents, which is which is nice. Some Susan, chase that, by the way. Yeah. They, they need it. You were saying the other the other week, you know, that New Zealand's female side, they've been really down in the dumps a little they bit. They lost, I think it was seven ODI series on the bounce oh, wow. leading into this one. So yeah, they really, really struggles. Um, Susie Bates scored 100 in the opener to help them win that reasonably comfortably. Um, friend of the show, Izzy Westbury, caused somewhat of a Twitter storm in no. India after tweeting that Mitali Raj is both the best and worst thing about Indian women's cricket. That's People brave. Leave that one alone. <laughs> um, uh, just, just another day in his life. <laughs> she loves it. Um, and in the Bangladesh Premier League, uh, Sunil Narayan hit a 13 ball 50 to take the Camilla Victorians to the final. Only three players have, have scored T2050s. Faster than that, can you can you get the three players? Gail. Yavraj. And Hazard to Lazarzai. Um, Against Ireland. I think so, yeah. Um, that, that Victorian That's side... That's the geekery, isn't it? Yeah. That's the geekery. <laughs> That's what they're referring to. That Victorian side got... A Seriously good trio of overseas players. So it's Sunil Narayan, Faf Duplessis, and Moeen Ali. Strong. Incredibly good. Uh, the final of that tournament is, uh, I think it's this weekend. 
Um, Will Jacks is almost certain to end the tournament as its leading run scorer. 414 runs at 41, a very good strike rate. Good player. Now, onto the listener questions. We've got loads of very good ones to get through. Um, so I guess we won't spend a huge amount of time on, on each of them um, so we can get through as many as we can. Um, uh, by the way, just to warn you, I've lost my notes. Uh, I put them on some email and I've lost them. So th- I, you're coming to me completely fresh here. I didn't know you made notes for this show. Well, <laughs> when, when you read of. out what questions you were going to ask us, obviously I didn't have a clue beforehand and now I don't have a clue again. Okay. All right, so here right. we go. So I'll go to Joe for the first one then. Um, yeah, and Meg, the second and the third. Meg asks, uh, do you think Owen Morgan's test career was unfairly cut short? He averaged 30 from 16 matches with 200 and was dropped to the age of 25 after a poor series in UAE, while Ollie Pope averages 28 from 23 matches with 100 and yet retains his place for the Caribbean Tour. I find it fascinating that Morgan's test career is deemed a failure, whereas Pope seems to be learning on the job. What are your thoughts? Yeah, Morgan the test cricketer is a really interesting conversation uh, and you have to think of it in the context of what was happening at that time because that was when you still couldn't go to the IPO and have a test career, basically, or it was very hard to do so. And Morgan was asked to stay behind and play county cricket to push for a test spot a couple of times, I think, and just said, no, I improve more as a player when I go to the IPO and was very firm about that. And, you know, it's it's paid off pretty handsomely for him. Um, I would say the Pope comparison, you know, you could say Pope's got too many chances at test level for the time being, but he has a massive weight of runs behind him in first-class cricket. And Morgan never really did I think he's averaging about what 34 35 in first class cricket um it was base he was basically called up on what he'd done in in one day cricket and for a time at work there were a couple of brilliant hundreds early doors um he really struggled in that series against Pakistan where he just didn't look like he could defend against spin so he, he had the sweeps he could attack as he obviously does in t20 cricket but when he had to just see it out it didn't look like he had the game for it and I would also question his desire to play test cricket really I th- I'm not when the other options came along I, th- I think he just decided pragmatically as he as he always does that that was not the best route for him to go down so I, I wouldn't say England selectors missed a trick there I think they gave him a gave him a shot and he decided that wasn't his best route which you know is, is fair mm. enough yeah the other thing I'd say is that um actually like Ravi Bopara him and Morgan they're but I think they both played their last tests in 2012, and that is when Root, Bairstow, and James Taylor come come in, come come onto the scene as like three really highly rated guys in their young 20s. And obviously, we know what happened to both of those test careers, and Stokes debuted quite soon after. So I guess there weren't really spots. And also, what um, follows English cricket deem as success has just changed that time. Averaging 30 back then wasn't great. Now England would probably take a guy average 30, or at least give them. Um, more of a chance. What did, one thing that did surprise me looking back at Morgan's records, so 2014, two years after being dropped from the test side, he pretty much played a full year of county cricket, played 11 first-class games, scored 900 runs at 46, which I'd kind of forgotten about, a couple of hundreds in there. So there was still some desire to play first-class cricket at that point, but since then he's played, what, 13 games over the last eight years. So And doesn't average much. Doesn't well. average much at yeah. all since then. So yeah. Um, Hannah asks, why can't, well, one, why can't England play a test match against South Africa and India next year. This is the women's team. Why does it have to be limited to one test per summer? I know in England played a test against India last summer, but why does that mean that they can't play another one against them this year? The England men played eight tests against India in one year and are playing another one this year. And two, why does women's international cricket hate the North West? I know, I know the 100 is here, but it's not quite the same for me. It is an improvement, but they'll be playing in Durham. But as a Lanx 
Greater Manchester-based cricket fan. It's quite a trek to get anywhere else to see it. My best option is Derby, which is still quite a way away. Um, any thoughts would be appreciated. I mean, I don't think they've got this right. I think it's been five years since England have played an international game in a city with a population of over a million. Too many games are in smaller towns and smaller cities. And the 100 has shown that there is now a big audience to spread the game into those bigger bigger cities. I think it's as simple as that. I think they haven't got that right. And I think they're starting to address that in the in the near future. They should play two test matches this summer. Yeah. You need us all in the face. Yeah. I mean, you need two teams to play ball. So we need to know what the BCCI would have said. Is there an appetite from them for, to, to play a test match? I'd be surprised if that wasn't for England. Perhaps, the, but we don't know really. Um, but I wouldn't put it all at the ECB's door necessarily. It's also, you know, a tricky summer with the Commonwealth Games. Yeah. Plus the 100, plus two teams. Uh, so it might be a logistical thing as well. But going forward, post Canberra and that, you know, kind of paradigm shift, if you like, in women's cricket, test cricket, then I'll be very surprised if after this summer, which is a bit unique with the Commonwealth Games, obviously with women's cricket being in it, just to clarify I think after that, I'd be very surprised if you don't see two test matches at least per year. And we should absolutely see that. The game has changed. As we said the other week, the game has changed. It's become more dynamic uh, and it's now ready to put on a proper show at test level. Shobo asked us to pick out a world women's test eleven. We're not going to do that because I think it's basically impossible to do given how few tests are played. One, but also two, how few teams have played test cricket recently. But Joe, in the upcoming magazine that went to print yesterday, there is a list of the best all format women's players in the world. Is that right? Yeah. So it's effectively to kind of mark the upcoming World Cup, 50 over World Cup in New Zealand. Yeah, we've picked the 22 best female cricketers in the world across all formats. Um, And test cricket obviously played its part in that list, but not that much because there isn't that much of it played. But interestingly, Lydia Greenway wrote a really nice piece on Heather Knight, who obviously features in that list. And, and within that, she says specifically for Heather, if there was more women's test cricket played, then she would have a reputation even far beyond the, the serious reputation she already has as a player because she looks ready-made for test cricket. That looks to suit her game perfectly. She can keep the runs flowing in test cricket, but she can also block out and it's just prepared to bat time we saw that her kind of breakthrough knock at Wormsley all those years ago and the women's ashes test and then obviously the, the stunner against uh, Australia at Canberra recently um, so it would be interesting to see if more test cricket is played some of these names not that Heather Knight is as a background name or anything but some of the names who are very good players at 50 over cricket T20 cricket might be exceptional at test cricket or, or vice versa an odd one there is Lanning who you know is, is, is an astonishing player one of the best who's ever played the game her test record is not great, albeit from a very, very small sample size because they don't play very much. So it, it would be interesting to see how, as women's test cricket evolves potentially over the next few years, which of these players kind of rise to the top. Fred asks, which England player from the 90s would have been the most sought after in an IPL auction? Whoa. Question of the week, this one, I thought. Actually, there's another good one to come. But um, yeah, lots of names popped into my head. Uh, Chris Lewis was the third, first. Lovely. Joe. Uh, Lovely. You know, did it all. Uh, I think he'd have enjoyed the kind of spectacle. He was a proper entertainer. I think he'd have done very really well. Another one that popped into my mind, this could have gone very wrong or very right, was was big Dev Malcolm. Because obviously the raw pace is, is where it's at in T20. His radar was not always the best. Um, but that wouldn't necessarily stop a, 
uh, Lucknow Supergiant. Is that a team? <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't know why I pulled that one out. Should have gone Mumbai Indians. Um, you've heard of that one. <laughs> However many craw for uh, for Big Dev. I could have yeah. seen that one playing out. Uh, Phil? Well, I really should have planned this one. Um, Goff is the first name that comes into my head. Yeah. Because he could land it absolutely where he needed to. And a good Yorker. Yorkers, all the rest mm. of it. Um, a kind of bumptious, bolshy sort of cricketer. I would love the spectacle, love the... Mm. They would They'd have loved him as well, wouldn't yeah. they? Yeah, also, he used to just have a slog, right? But he had a really good eye for a ball. He made a 50-odd um, Sydney, I think it was, where he just swung from the hip. Has he, he got made a 60-odd ba- as seven, well. possibly? No, he's back. Well, maybe at that time, certainly like probably eight or nine, but he made a 60-odd as well, maybe on his debut, certainly his debut summer, mm. playing test cricket in England. And then his batting fell away, became kind of laughable. But if he played in this generation, then he'd have developed the reverse here and the, you know, the back away, slap it over extra cover shots and so on, that he didn't have, there was no necessity for him to learn that. He, he'd have been a useful number eight, nine, the odd the odd finish would be in would be delivered by him and of course you know as a bowler he'd be massively loved and uh, and needed I think obviously with the bat well you know Ali Brown's the obvious name to throw around um, other uh, other good ones Adam D- Dermot Reeve would probably have been useful Reeve, yeah. in a sort of Benny Howell type way Adam know? Hollyoak Adam Hollyoak was one of, yeah I thought Hollyoak is a good shout yeah yeah um, if you're talking Benny Howells Matthew Fleming I think would have been the the then the Ben Benny Howe. Slower Tr- balls. Tr- debuted in 2000, I think. Yeah. So technically doesn't count. But I mean, how much money would he have made? When you look at how valuable white ball openers are in 20 over cricket and of course in 50, but you imagine the ma- how desirable he yeah. would have become. N- Neil Fairbrother in the finishing role? Well, finishing role or the Pick. kind of Kane, Kane Williamson anchor role, I think might have suited... Fair brother more because you look at he wasn't a big hitter was it? I mean it was more more your time than mine but he was a kind All of right. it was a <laughs> you're right yeah mid overs accumulator kind of it, it, totally yeah he won a game in the '92 World Cup against South Africa which is like masterclass you know and, and probably hit two or three boundaries in it but I guess finishing is very different now to what it was then yeah yeah but but he he could hit a ball as well yeah. um also yeah. when he did the uh, the gear test when we were all out cricket all those years ago. The bat he picked out was like the lightest of the lot. Mm. It was absolutely tiny. It was just like a toothpick mm. that he was batting with. So he might need to up yeah. his bat size a bit. Um, Hick, yeah, should have been, should have opened the batting probably. You know, in a mm. more evolved time, you could see Hick opening the batting in white ball cricket for in twenty over cricket and in fifty over cricket and just being unstoppable. Um, he was good in the blast in the early years. He yes, was one of the first yes, hundreds as well. He was. He was. Uh, I mean, his career, as we know, in, in Test cricket, fell away. 130 first-class hundreds he made, but he was good in, in white ball cricket for England, or the equivalent of white ball cricket in the 90s. Um, even despite him falling away elsewhere, uh, a different time, a different captaincy, uh, leadership role around him, and all the rest of it. I think he'd have been phenomenal. And today, again, he'd be a very, very rich man. I think. Alex Tudor as well, similar mm. in terms of his batting ability, which did, did, yeah, did fall away possibly, a bit. Possibly. I mean, that, that kind of heavy ball, back of a length, which is very popular now in 20 over cricket, it had been useful there. I don't know if he'd maybe be quite quick enough 
to not come onto the bat quite nicely, you know, 50, 50, 60 yard boundaries and so on. Maybe I'm being a bit unfair on him. Um, but to me, he was always more of a red ball bowler than a, than a so-called white Didn't ball Didn't play bowler. a lot of one-day cricket, did he, actually? No, probably not. I was not. thinking more as a kind of all-round cricketer, what he would have to offer. But That's quite a long list of names there, I think. Oh, oh, sure. <laughs> just keep going forever. I enjoyed that. Thank you. Dave Ross, this is quite an interesting question, I think. Do you think the ECB should be doing more to develop an indoor form of the game? The 100 indoor in a big arena, for example. It seems a little old-fashioned to just accept that the majority of the sport stops for half the year. I think that's quite interesting. I guess from a, in a, profession, a professional level, that's difficult is because of how much cricket now takes place around the world. Um, even county players who you're not probably aware of what they do during the winter go abroad and make money over abroad. So it'd be quite hard starting something from scratch. I think it's a really, really good question and a very important point for the future of the game. I think it's more interesting from a recreation level. Sure. More p- so, keeping players involved the whole year round. Sorry, that's what I'm getting at. Uh, the ECB South Asian strategy programme, which was launched, what, 2018, I think? Uh, they One of their um, pledges was to open 30 urban cricket centres huge aircraft hangar style centres to cultivate cricket through the winter months um, with indoor competitive cricket being a part of that. Not just a couple of nets, but a proper centre for cricket. There's currently two of the 30, but this is a hopefully a long-term plan which which they can honour. There's one in Leighton in East London, which is doing great work via the Essex pathway set up and so on and there's one in Bradford and I think that's it I might need to clarify that but there's certainly they're the only two that I've heard of and the Bradford one only opened I think a year and a half ago uh, Lord Patel was there for the opening I think it was the early part of 2020 when it opened so there's currently as far as I know just two but they pledged as I said in this um, this, this program this, this South Asian strategy program that they would open 30 plus that to me should be right at the top or near the top of their priorities, because this is a way to keep people in the game. It's a way to encourage people into the game. Uh, and it's a way to ma- maintain a kind of degree of competitiveness as well. I mean, I played indoor cricket a lot when I was a kid. It's a really, really good form of the game. You know, it's a very athletic, very quick form of the game. It's like a precursor, if you like, to the, the athleticism of 20-over cricket now. And while you obviously have issues regarding this, the space required to play a proper good game it can feel a bit cramped at times Uh, it's something that the ECB have their eye on when it comes to these urban centres because they are big huge places where you can actually play a proper game and not be too concerned about it feeling a bit claustrophobic it's also more accessible for new players as well so I've got a friend who basically only got into cricket via IPL on ITV4 for quite a few years ago and he didn't basically play cricket at all for years but he joined an indoor cricket team because you don't need as much kit, basically. Yeah. It's slightly more accessible. It's less of a time commitment. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think there's a lot in that. We should, yeah, prob- we should probably absolutely. do something on it in a bit more detail, kind of speaking to ECB and stuff like that. Yeah. I think it's quite interesting. Andrew asks, could the downgrading of the Royal London Cup threaten our chances of maintaining England's world champion status in 50 over cricket? There's been a lot of talk of other formats recently, but is this the one where supposedly best at and potentially least focus on right now. Um, well, I kind of cheekily said that uh, England's good performance in the Under-19 World Cup can 
actually be partly down to the Royal London One Day Cup because loads of these young players got a chance to play. Um, Andrew's definitely right in that no one really seems to care about it at the moment. Um, but is it something that when England get dumped out in the group stages of the 2027 World Cup, we'll have a massive rebrand and start from scratch again? Yeah, ready for another reset. Um, yeah, absolutely. It feels exactly that way. Um, I do think it's something English cricket's taken our eye off the ball on. And when I was speaking to Daryl Mitchell about issues around county cricket and we were focusing more on the Red Bull stuff, he was he, he was obviously PCA chairman until last year, said that's something that really needs to be talked about because yeah he said exactly as you just said when England don't win it or do badly at it everyone's gonna be like well what, what are we thinking um so I think we're kind of sleepwalking into that situation and you know we just come around to the same old question how do you fit it all in and we've tried to do that many times in this podcast with varying degrees of success but I, I remember when you spoke to Zach Crawley a couple of years ago he said that he conceivably might not play another domestic 50 over game again given with the current scheduling with a 50 over competition taking place at the same time as 100. It's quite interesting. We're talking about Will Smead earlier. He's never played a 50 over game. This is one of England's you know, most exciting white ball talents. He's not played a 50 over game. When is he going to play a 50 over game? I mean, uh, it's quite interesting. It's a bit of an arse just to expect these young players who've never played the format professionally to do it well. I mean, you know, look, look I always felt one of the most underrated components of England's World Cup winning t- team was Root kind of just being able to average 50 at a strike rate of 95. You can't just expect someone to do that from scratch. I mean, maybe you can expect uh, your best T20 players to bat like best and roll at the top of the order or finish off like Butler and Morgan. But I think th- those roles, you know, the guys who average 50 are those high strikers. You can't really just expect these players to do that. Yeah, bang um, on. Exactly. It's very simplistic to think that 20 over cricket can just easily just be spread a little bit into yeah. 50 over. Very, very different games. Um, and we finish off with another great question. Uh, Billy asks... If called up to be an emergency standing captain for England, which one of the three of you would do the best job? Um, I'm oh, I'm newly appointed. Well, well, no, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm newly appointed vice captain of the twos next season. Are so, you? Yeah, you yeah, very exciting. That. Yeah, I think a lot of pod, that under your hat. a lot of pod time over the summer will be devoted <laughs> to the success of the twos. You're a natural um, committee there. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, Joe. Yeah, how do I put this delicately? <laughs> <laughs> My concern, I would say, maybe on cricketing now, in general experience over the years, you'd probably have to look for Phil. But yeah. I would be—you con- wouldn't want to play under me, would you? I would be concerned. <laughs> I mean, I think there's little chance of me getting in your side. But I think there's, there's my concern would be that you might get a low score, your head drops a little bit, and then you're not that bothered about the rest of the test match. Mm. Okay. Whereas I think Yaz would throw himself into it wholeheartedly as as more of a. I mean, he, he, you saw him lose his, his shit <laughs> last summer, right? You, oh, when you, he didn't you, get his full allocation of overs. Yeah. yeah. No, but if anything, that makes me think he's even he's a good shot for it. Because that was, well, it was, I suppose, was it selfish? But you, you wanted it for the team, I felt like. He did, and he wanted it for himself. Well, I, he wanted his full allocation. He wasn't going to head all the way out to, for, for context, to we were the playing, South Coast unless well, you were going to get your full allocation. For, selfish. For, for context, we were playing a 40-over game. That, televised. Um, <laughs> it wasn't televised. <laughs> Uh, we're, we're playing a 40 over game where uh, bowlers could only bowl seven overs rather than eight and this wasn't uh, conveyed to me until I'd bowled my seventh over so I was just merely asking the umpire uh, asking what, what, you what, asked what, them a few <laughs> times <laughs> um, um, I'd like to offer in response to that Joe uh, I think I'd be a gooch like figure I think my game <laughs> would would go to another level with the added responsibility of leadership okay, okay? 
Well, we'll, we'll see. I mean, so will we see? Are, are, are we going to play some games this summer? We played a couple last summer. We should we should play more in 2022. They were they were fun. All right, um, we could each have a game as captain yeah. and then report back how they've gone. <laughs> was I captain of the game when you yeah lost your yeah your call yeah and and I mean we got stuffed, got beat by seven wickets, <laughs> and I definitely let it slide in the second yeah. half of that. Uh, um, yeah. Okay. Okay. I have captained some teams. Um, you know, I'll give you my CV. I'll, go on, I'll put go it, on. No, no, no. It's, it's it's all there for you. Well, I think it should be really. It's for the listeners. And what to about decide. you? I mean, but, mm. but you you have a natural air of authority, yeah. Joe, that I can only less admire so on, from afar. Less so on a cricket field, though. That's the problem. That's where it starts to, <laughs> to fall to pieces. Yeah, possibly, um, possibly. I don't know. Oh, I, could, I could fill a sort of really role. <laughs> yeah, barely um, worth my place in the side, but yeah, bigging yourself up straight away. I can um, see that. Interesting. Interesting. And and Ben, who's not here, but he's no. never played cricket. Never played cricket. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've seen him play cricket out on the oh, really? oval. We did. We had a corporate day. We got invited okay. to put in a team at the last minute. Uh, ben was dressed ludicrously for the occasion <laughs> and got no. bowled first ball. I mean, I'm not surprised by that. I mean, but, but uh, listeners might have heard this before, but Ben has basically never played cricket before, which is <laughs> he which only is heard of really cricket strange. about ten years ago, didn't he? Yeah, very very strange. Anyway, uh, that's all we have time for. Cheers, Joe. Cheers, Phil. Um, this has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast. Um, nowadays, you can you can rate podcasts on the Spotify app. So if you enjoy the show, if you've got this far in, you, you probably do. Um, please do consider giving us a five star review. Cheers. Podcast Network.